how is the this. Truth Frequency Radio Network. T-F-R. Truth Frequency Radio. Hello and welcome to the Revolutionary Radio Project. I'm your host, Rob Skiba. I'm excited to be joined once again by my friend and co-host, Zen Garcia. Are you there, sir? I am, brother. Good to be here with you again and with everybody listening. Yeah, man. Uh, tonight, the uh, Take on the World 2020 conference kicked off earlier this evening. Yeah. Uh, it started like 7.30 or 7 o'clock or something like that, central time. And uh, so that's off and running. So if anybody wants to check that out, you guys can go to Robbie Davidson's YouTube channel, Celebrate Truth, and it's uh, streaming for free. So uh, be sure to check that out. Um, and Take on the World TV also has some stuff on their channel, I think, and you can maybe look it up on the website to find the speaker schedule. Do you know when you're scheduled to go on? No, I have no clue. Uh, I think they're just releasing it day by day. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah, they're doing it day by day for the next uh, well, three more days. But they had a schedule up um, that showed what, uh, for the whole thing. Yeah, that showed who's speaking oh, okay. when. I think I'm closing out uh, three of the four nights anyway. So I, I know nice. what, mine's at the end. Yeah, I have no clue. Well, people can check that out. Uh, I enjoyed. Uh, well, tonight they had mine, and then there was another guy, and I just had his name and forgot it already. Kevin's in the <laughs> Kevin's in the chat room. Maybe you can help me out, buddy. I can't remember the other speaker. He was actually supposed to go before me, but something happened, I think, with his upload or whatever. So they put mine on first, and then uh, his followed afterwards. But right it was pretty good. And then I got they got a really. I think they start maybe around noon. I think tomorrow or something like that. So and then it's like all day for the next couple of days. So yeah, a lot of presentations. I do plan on trying to catch some of it. And, um, you know, at some point I'll try to go back and review uh, as much as I can. Yeah. Uh, Greg, thank you, Kevin. Greg Widener, I think is his name. Greg Widener. He, his was short, though. It wasn't very long. All right. Um, so last week on your show we covered the Table of Nations, and I, I think we pretty much said everything that probably needed to be said for Genesis 10. Can you think of any dangling plot threads we didn't address maybe um other than in some of the manuscripts there is the story uh, as far as you know with regard to abraham and how he's thrown into the furnace and his birth is all talked about and it's after this but um that's not included in in the regular king james and so i don't know if you want to go into that or what we're going to well, uh, move into next. Yeah, I was. Uh, I quickly reviewed what we talked about last week, and so we would be going into Genesis 11. And then I thought, I, I looked at the Jubilees account from Gen, uh, Jubilees 8, 9, and 10, and there was quite a, I just skimmed over it like 20 minutes ago, and there's quite a lot of interesting things in there, so I thought maybe... Uh, we could do Genesis 11, 
and then backtrack a little bit and do Jubilees 8, 9, and 10. 10 will get us caught up into Tower of Babel. Okay, cool. So uh, I can go ahead and read um, Genesis 11 from the King James, and if you want to get Jubilees 8 up. I'll do the Targum after you do that. Okay, yeah, we, we can do that. The, yeah, that, that's that. what I do. Cool. All right, All right, let me switch over here. Genesis chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was an hundred years old and begat Arphaxad two hundred or two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad five hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived five and thirty years and begat Selah. And Arphaxad lived after he begat Selah four hundred and three years and begat sons and daughters. And Selah lived thirty years and begat Eber. And Selah lived after he begat Eber four hundred and three years and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived four and thirty years and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg four hundred and thirty years and begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived thirty years and begat Rio. And Peleg lived after he begat Rio two hundred and nine years and begat sons and daughters. And Rio lived two and thirty years and begat Serug. And Rio lived after he begat Serug two hundred and seven years and begat sons and daughters. And Serug lived thirty years and begat Nahor. And Serug lived after he begat Nahor two hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah a hundred and nineteen years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived seventy years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran l died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. That is like a really, really high-level 
cliff note <laughs> version of this story. Genesis just gives you like the barest of necessities to right. to help you understand the main character that's being introduced here, being mm-hmm. Abram. But, Abram, yes. But Joshua, yeah, we should probably jump into that too. We'll probably camp out here for a while because between the Jubilees account, whatever you're going to read in the Targum, and uh, if we get into the Joshua account, and I think yeah. it'd be fun to do that because the Joshua account uh, of the life of Abram leading up to them being called out of mm-hmm. Ur of the Chaldees is, is quite a story. Yeah, and I, and I have some of the other stuff too, the Legends of the Jews, the Perky Rabbi Eleazar, and awesome. others open. So, All right, um, All right, the Targum. And all the earth was of one language and one speech and one counsel. In the holy language spake they, that by which the world had been created at the beginning. And it was while they were journeying from the east that they found a plain in the land of Babel and dwelt there. Jerusalem and all the inhabitants of the earth were of one language and of one speech and of one counsel. For they spake the holy language by which the world was created at the beginning, while their hearts erred afterwards from the word of him who spake, and the world was at the beginning. And they found a plain in the land of Pontos, and dwelt there. And they said a man to his fellow, Come, we will cast bricks and put them in the furnace. And they had brick for stone and slime for cement. And they said, Come, we will build us a city and a tower, and the head of it shall come to the summit of the heavens, and we will make us an image for worship on the top of it, and put a sword in his hand to act against the array of war. Before that we be scattered on the face of the earth. And the Lord was revealed to punish them for the work of the city, and the tower which the sons of men sons of men builded Jerusalem and they said come now and we will build us a city and a tower and the head of it shall reach to the summit of the heavens and we will make us in it a house of worship at the top and we will put a sword in its hand lest there be set against him the array of war before we be scattered upon the face of all the earth and the Lord said behold The people is one, and the language of all of them one, and this they have thought to do, and now they will not be restrained from doing whatever they imagine. And the Lord said to the seventy angels which stand before him, Come, we will descend, and we will there commingle their language, that a man shall not understand the speech of his neighbor. And the word of the Lord was revealed against the city, and with him seventy angels, having reference to seventy nations, each having its own language, and thence the writing of its own hand. And he dispersed them from thence upon the face of all the earth into seventy languages, and one knew not what his neighbor would say, but one slew the other, and they ceased from building the city. Therefore... He called the name of it Babel, because there did the Lord commingle the speech of all the inhabitants of the earth. And from thence did the Lord disperse them upon the faces of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was a son of a hundred years, and he begat Arphraxad, two years after the deluge. 
And Shem lived after he had begotten, Arphaxad, 500 years, and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived 30 and 5 years, and begat Shalak. And Arphaxad lived after he had begotten Shalak, 430 years, and begat sons and daughters. And Shalak lived 30 years, and begat Eber. And Shalak lived after he had begotten Eber, 403 years, and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived 34 years and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he had begotten Peleg 430 years and begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and begat Ru. And Peleg lived after he had begotten Ru 209 years and begat sons and daughters. And Ru lived 32 years and begat Sarug. And Ru lived after he had begotten Sarug 270 years and seven years and begat sons and daughters. And Sarug lived 30 years and begat Nahor. And Sarug lived after he had begotten Nahor 200 years and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived 29 years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he had begotten Terah 116 years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram and Nahor and Haran. These are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And it was when Nimrod had cast Abram into the furnace of fire, because he would not worship his idol, and the fire had no power to burn him, that Haran's heart became doubtful, saying, If Nimrod overcome, I will be on his side. But if Abram overcome, I will be on his side. And when all the people who were there saw that the fire had no power over Abram, they said in their hearts, Is not Haran the brother of Abram full of divinations and charms? And has he not uttered spells over the fire that it should not burn his brother? Immediately, Minyad, out of hand, there fell fire from the high heavens and consumed him. And Haran died in the sight of Terah, his father, where he was burned in the land of his, nat his nativity, in the furnace of the fire which the Kazdai had made for Abram, his brother. And Abram and Nahor took to them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of the wife of Nahor, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, and the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah, who is Sarah, and Sarah was barren. She had no child, the Jerusalem Targum. And Sarah was barren. She had no son. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, bar Haran, the son of his son, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, the wife of Abram, his son, and went forth with them from Urah of the Kazdai to go to the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. It's interesting that this story does mention, the Targum here mentions, you know, the whole thing with the fiery furnace in Abram. Wow, so that was actually in the Targum. Mm-hmm. That's amazing how much more, I mean, it, clearly the Targums 
I, I mean, they added quite a bit of commentary. Yeah, um, yeah, but I think this, you know, this commentary was included in so do you the think original. that was the original text? Because okay, so if we understand Targum is just the Hebrew word for translation. translation. Yeah. So these are the first translations that came out of the Babylonian exile. Uh, right. Presumably under what Ezra, Nehemiah, and those guys? Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, because even Daniel and Jeremiah, those books were written in Aramaic as well. So, so it was during that time so, while they were in the captivity of Babylon. So if that's the case, then, I mean, if, if they're giving a faithful translation then we've got a seriously edited version. Yeah, I I do believe so, yeah. Um, Because why would all of this commentary just be added in? Because it's a translation. They were translating from the Hebrew into Aramaic. And so it only makes sense to me. And then again, this is the oldest translation. It predates even the Septuagint by 200 years. Wow. 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 Uh, wow. I mean, no wonder you have such a, a healthy regard for these Targums. Yeah. I mean, you've really given me a healthy respect for them as well, especially when I consider what you just said in terms of the chronology, because I've, I've grown a really healthy respect for the Septuagint uh, for reasons we've discussed mm-hmm. in previous broadcasts, namely the fact that the while the Hebrew language may have been limited to something like I think I think they say it's like eight thousand words or something like that mm-hmm, with right, prefixes, yeah. prefixes and suffixes that you can add to change things around a bit, but the Greek had a much more robust vocabulary, and so right. uh, like in the previous broadcast when I was showing you that website that has the color codes, you know what, what has amazed me is that here you have. Hebrew scholars that know their Hebrew texts, translating them into Greek, where they have mm-hmm. a much bigger palette to play, you know, more right. colors to play with, so to speak. Um, so they could pick appropriate word, more specific appropriate words yes. in their mm-hmm. translations, like in the case with uh, rakia being stereoma, which in right. no way can be an air, gas, or the vacuum of space. <laughs> and yeah. in last week's, we talked about uh, Gabor, or Giborim, the plural. Right. For Nimrod, they translated as Gigas, the root from which we get Gigantis, or Gigantic, or Giant. And yet they took the same Hebrew word, Gabor, or Giborim, and translated Tos Dinatos, meaning strong, mighty warrior, for David's mighty men. Taking the same Hebrew word, but having a different historical context they had more words to choose from in Greek mm-hmm. and translated them appropriate but you're saying these Targums predate the Septuagint even by a few hundred years yes and yet it has this much more elaboration <laughs> in these stories than wow what did we end up with you know exactly and and you know why was this information removed and who decided on taking it out yeah, because it's preserved really, there in the Aramaic. That is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, everything from what's going on in Genesis 4, 1, uh, right. t- to what what you just read just now. I mean, oh, and then, the, you know, again, the whole thing of the word of the Lord. Right. Like, even here, the word of the Lord with his 70 angels coming down and commingling uh-huh. the languages. Yeah, that's you know, the so let us. You have Christ involved in the story. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the word of the Lord and his 70. So that this gets yeah. to, you know, Michael Heiser's dissertation. You know, right. the I, may, of the money. I may have issues with him on a variety of other topics, but I think he's right on target with the uh, divine mm-hmm. council stuff. Right. And then, the you know, again, with regard to the Aramaic Targum, in the first five books of the Pentateuch, the word of the Lord is represented there 217 times. Wow. And you find only in the King James 11 translations of the word of the Lord. Wow. And so over 200 times it's been removed or changed to just Lord. So so then do you think that the texts from which we ended up with the uh, Textus Receptus and even other manuscripts that we now have for our English translations, do you think that those all started being tampered with after the first century? Absolutely, yes. And I think that it was specific to remove the word um, of Lord. connotation to Christ as the word of the Lord and his being part of the pre-existent Godhead and the fact that the Israelites worshipped a trinity going back all the way to Adam. Wow. That's that's amazing, man. I mean, it's, it's making me really, my mind is like really opened now to <laughs> um, exploring this a lot more because, you, you know, you, People always want to question, like Joshua, for instance. Mm-hmm. We, and we've talked about in the previous broadcast, we won't talk about it now, but why we accept it. Um, and, I mean, one of the things that I've always uh, used for my reason for accepting Joshua is the, the correlation in other accounts to it right. that are, you know, perfect right. match for Legends of the Jews or you know, various Midrash that you can read from the rabbis or whatnot. I mean, they're all telling the same stories that we find in Joshua. Yes. And but from what you just read, it sounds like you could make the same claim being in the Targum. For not all of it, oh, yeah. but certainly a lot of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, with regard to the Targum, you do find a lot of stories included that are confirmed in books like Jasher and Jubilees and mm. the Perk de Rabbi Eleazar and the Legends of the Jews and and other parallel accounts as well. So uh, I don't know if it mentioned anything specifically in what you just read because I was kind of multitasking, so I may have missed it. Did did the Targum mention anything about the size of the Tower of Babel and why they went to the plains of Shinar to build it? Um, it says that it was built to the summit of heaven. And then in a, another, in the Chronicles of Jeremiah, it actually speaks about how they are trying to break through the firmament. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, which, yeah, which, and they're, they're trying to wage war on God. And, and when we come back from the break, I'll pull that up and Yeah, I was going to say, we got uh, about three minutes before the break, so if you could pull yeah. that up. Uh, and we'll we'll look at Joshua and Jubilees and stuff because you know it's funny I I published I I published Genesis with the King James and the Septuagint side by side as well as the entire book of First Enoch and the Charles translation the entire book of Joshua and Jubilees in one volume and even in the introduction and in some of my footnotes because I did do a little bit of footnotes and wrote about some things in in the Genesis and the synchronized biblically endorsed extra biblical text volume that I put out uh, I was 
at that time that that was published in 2013 was still locked in the Copernican model of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And people give me a hard time for it now because I got the globe on the cover, and I tell no, that's not the globe. That's not the globe. <laughs> it's just the, that's the circle of the Earth viewed at an angle. See, so you're, <laughs> see, you're looking at the outer rim there, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, so I don't have to redo the cover. Um, but but there are comments that I made inside there related to the globe, and it's just it just goes to show you when you look at text with a certain pair of glasses on that yes. people gave us, you know, that, that we're looking at these things through, we miss stuff. And I had always said, if you go back to my pre-2015 research, had said, you know, it wasn't about height. You know, if it was about height, they would have they would have started building on a mountain, right? If you're going to, if it's about height. No, they built mm-hmm. in a plane. So clearly it wasn't about height. And so therefore, the Tower of Babel must have been a stargate. Yeah. Yes. And, <laughs> and uh, of course... Yeah, Tom Horn, Steve Quayle, all those guys, you know, they're still on that page. And and I was on that page largely because of what I was reading in their research. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, And you know, back then we're filtering everything through, through the, yeah. the whole concept of Copernican. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean to be fair, I would have come to the same conclusions, you know, uh if they're trying to reach in the heaven and they got this little stubby ziggurat thing in, in a valley it had to meant something else, right? So therefore, you know, with all the sci-fi stuff we've been programmed with, you know, for decades, we're like, well, it must have been a Stargate. And yet, in the text itself that I published, it tells you, no, this thing is freaking huge. Like, mm-hmm. and, and as I started looking at other research, uh, finding out that the base of this structure was on the low side, 100 square miles, on the high side, 200 square miles. Right. And now I'm like, oh, they needed a plane of Shinar because they needed a flat surface big enough to have a base for a structure that would be right. so huge that it would actually make an attempt to reach up to the firmament. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes, amazing, yeah. But that's true. It had to be wide enough at the base so that you know they can continue as high as they needed to reach the summit of heaven. And the text has been saying it all along. It's just all along. We exactly. we weren't seeing it because we were looking through the wrong lenses. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to break now. We'll talk some more when we come back. All right. Hey everyone, it's Chris Geo, founder of Truth Frequency Radio and host of Beyond the Veil. The mainstream media and establishment are running scared right now, and they've prominently featured TruthFrequencyRadio.com as number 89 on the federal government's hit list, also known as the fake news list, which is essentially a list of sites slated for censorship on Facebook, YouTube, Google, and other social media. Now is the time for you to get involved. Share your favorite TFR shows far and wide on forums and social media. Tell your friends and family about your favorite shows. If you're a business owner, get in touch with us to feature your product or service right here on TFR. And if you haven't done so already, become a TFR supporter now and get unlimited commercial-free downloads in high quality. Visit truthfrequencyradio.com slash sign up. Thank you for making TFR the leader in independent and uncensored talk radio. Truth Frequency Radio. <laughs> 
your protection from deception. Poor water quality is a major health issue, and it's only getting worse. Municipalities can't keep up, standards have dropped, and pollutants are increasing. Where does it all end? It ends by keeping the pollutants outside of your home with HydroCare's advanced systems available at Wave Home Solutions. No less than the best purification materials and processes have been developed by HydroCare to provide you with healthy, clean water for drinking, cooking, and showering. HydroCare far surpasses the competition in removing chlorine, odors, iron, lead, chemicals, limescale, and much more. Don't settle for less when it comes to your water. We'll take care of the toughest water problems for you, whether it's from a city or well source. Satisfaction guaranteed. For more information, call 888-997-WAVE. That's 888-997-WAVE. Or go to bestwater123.com. That's bestwater123.com. Wave Home Solutions for a healthy, comfortable home. Once in a decade, a true story comes along that remembers the future. After six Amazon bestsellers, I have completed the epic Birth Trilogy, a true story of Earth. By reading the Birth Trilogy, you will journey with the characters from the origin of Earth to its final destiny in a white-knuckle ride that combines the intrigue of Tom Clancy with the epic scope of Prometheus and Interstellar. You will learn more about the purpose of life, the mystery of death, and the true nature of your soul than you thought possible. The Birth Trilogy is now available on Amazon and Kindle. The audio version is a free bonus when you buy the paperback, so even if you're not a great reader, don't worry about it. I read it for you. Use the Amazon app today and buy the Birth Trilogy, spelled B-E-A-R-T-H, or search for my name. I'm Brooks Agnew. Real people, real radio. Wherever you are, make it TFR. Truth Frequency Radio. We're back on the Revolutionary Radio Project. I'm your host, Rob Skiba, and I'm joined with Zen Garcia, and we're talking about Genesis chapter 11. And uh, there's a book that uh, Dr. Ken Johnson put out called Ancient Post-Flood History, and he makes some interesting observations in that book. Have you ever read that book, Zen? Um, no, I, I have not. I think I have it, though, actually. But I haven't read it yet. Uh, it's a short book. Uh, I would uh, advise you check it out. It's, it's got some really good commentary, specifically on this chapter. Um, although I don't remember him talking about the Tower of Babel so much as he was talking more about who went, who, who went where and when as a result mm-hmm. of you know the dispersion at the Tower of Babel. Uh, but he did make an in- interesting observation regarding the origin of what we might consider post-flood gods the gods in the post-flood world. And we, we know in Genesis 6-4, it talks about that the offspring of the angels became great men of renown. 
and uh-huh. I believe that there are pre-flood men of renown and post-flood men of renown. Um, h- however, the pre-flood men of renown, I think, were much more supernatural in nature, in the sense of being, you know, hybrid offspring like that. Whereas uh-huh. the post-flood um, uh, account of gods, while there may be some supernatural aspects to it in, in the sense of maybe people having various attributes and abilities, uh, perhaps due to transhumanism, he makes the case, uh, which is also known as euhemerism, that the gods of the ancient world can be traced back to humans, and uh-huh. just like regular humans, and he was making the observation that, look, Noah lived to be 950 years old and his sons to about 600 years old. The next generation lived to between 400 and 500 years of age, and Abraham's generation lived only to about 200 years of age, and then from Moses to today, people only live until about 120 years of age at the, on the high side. You know, and, and David said, you know, it was Psalm 90:10, I think it is, where he talks about man's days are, are 70 years, 80 if by strength. Right. Um, now, uh, he, he's, uh, Ken Johnson was uh, looking at this, and I made a chart up in my mythology in the coming great deception. Of course, I need to make a chart uh, showing <laughs> overlaps of people and the ages and stuff like that. But in his book, he says, we can see how several myths might develop. First, people who only live to about 200 years old would consider those living much longer to be immortals. And their parents, who apparently will never die, to be gods. I got a misspelling here. It should say it says day, but uh, it should be die, to be gods. But when the first three generations start dying off, rumors will develop about wars between the immortals and gods. After the languages change at the Tower of Babel, the legends would have been even more confused with a variety of different names applied to each mortal or god. This is, again, the theory of euhemerism. If you look that up, it's a theory attributing the origin of the gods to the deification of historical heroes. And Clement of Alexandria even said, in reference to that, he says, those to whom you bow were once men like yourselves. So he's basically saying, look, if you're in that generation that's living, let's say, 100 to 200 years of age, like every all everybody that's born in this generation is dying out, you know, by the time they're two hundred, and yet there are people walking around that are twice that old, you know, and right. and their grandparents or even great grandparents are still walking around. And they're six hundred years old or five hundred years old. Mm-hmm. Now, just imagine what normal human ego would do in a situation like that, where okay, you're you you let's say you're in the generation that's living in the five hundred time frame and you got great 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 grandchildren down there and an offspring of other people looking at you and you know they're about to die you know they're on their deathbed in their late hundreds and they're like why are you still around well how tempting would it be for you to say well I'm a god <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and as these people are dying off they would be what, what are they going to say Right, I mean, they're, right. they're like you guys must be immortals, and then they die, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, just think about normal human ego, the way people work and the way people think, and and uh, think about the amount of wisdom, knowledge, and experience you'd have if you're living 500 years, as opposed to people who are living less than half of that. You'd be extremely smart. You'd have a lot of experience, um, and you probably are stronger. Obviously, living that much longer, you know. 
you can see larger how, stature, possibly. possibly even larger larger stature being a part of mm-hmm. it also. Uh, I mean, you could see how people would take advantage of that situation very easily, mm-hmm. and even start to think of themselves as gods. Yeah, I guess I must right. be a god. Look how long I'm living, you know, compared to everybody else around uh-huh. me. So uh, I, I thought that was a really interesting and very reasonable observation of the first several, I mean, probably maybe up to 10 generations after the flood, dealing with these slow decline in longevity and how people could have taken advantage of that situation and and legends and stuff of the battles of this guy. I mean, this guy's 550 years old and he lived through all this and he fought those giants there. And, you know, you could see right, how, right. You could yeah. see how that the would... the stories, you know, that he could tell, I mean, going all the way back. Um, but there is a book, and I've sent it to you, it's called The Travels of Noah in, yeah. into Europe. And it's based on the repopulating of the earth after the flood of Noah's day. And it show it's like a tables of nations as well but in that book it also mentions the same thing uh with regard to the people that lived very long lives uh even noah even though he was you know it says in the book that he was telling them that he was no god but yet they were still yeah attributing and worshiping him as such and so the stories and um, of you know the longer generations that lived previous uh, in they were celebrated as heroes and they were you know uh, honored as like you know the immortals or titans or whatever and that book is um even though it was translated in 1611 i believe it's a book that holds basis to barosus and barosus was oh, wow. the the historian that uh, Alexander the Great had um, commissioned to write the tales and the legends of the pre-flood giants and the you know the dragon lords and the kings of old. Uh, he and Manthea were the two historians that are especially honored, and his books are are rare. You now only find mention of Barossus's, um works in other um, historians like Alexander Polyhistor and things of that nature. Does uh, Dio, what's his name, Diodorus Siculus, I think, or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of, lot of historians mention mm-hmm. the work of Barossus, but this, act, this book was uh, an, an actual translation from one of his surviving manuscripts, and so it's very interesting. It, it also speaks about that same theme, though. Mm, very cool. Uh, somebody in the chat room reminded me of something I wanted to run by you before I forget uh, that came up during the um, Take on the World conference um, that just aired. And that was, there's a video circulating right now. And actually, I remember when the Facebook post first started circulating uh, back in, I, I want to say it was 2015, about the uh, Blue Sky Stone, the, the, uh-huh. the blue ice of Antarctica. Um, I'll put it up on the screen here for those watching on YouTube. Uh, it's a, you could go to Flat Earth Brothers' YouTube channel and look up the video, What Happened When They Drilled Into an Ice Wall Near the Firmament in the 1960s. Or in the 60s. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, I'll, I'll post the link in the chat room for everybody. Uh, maybe we can look into that. But um, he's basically reading from an article that was circulating on Facebook back then, and I lost track of it, so I was so glad to 
to see that somebody picked up on it. This video was just uploaded a few days ago. Um, but it, so he's basically reading the letter and he's got some pretty cool visuals on the screen about it. But yeah, very, 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 very interesting. And it's what I've been saying all along is because uh, I've met some people that uh, were stationed in Antarctica and uh-huh. uh, for years. And or back and forth, you know, went back and forth. And and this one guy I met, uh, he had been there for quite some time. And I said, okay, in all the time that you were there, did you or anybody that you know of that you may have talked to, has anybody gone more than 800 to 1,200 miles inland from the coast? And he was not aware of anybody. And I met another guy. uh, I think he worked for Raytheon or something. um, And neither was he. So... Two people that I knew, that I, I met and personally talked to that had been down there, were unaware of anybody having gone more than 800 to 1,200 miles inland from any place on the coastline. And so, I mean, this is what fueled all my speculation and everything when I started looking into the Operation Deep Freeze and then the activity that immediately followed with the dig race, the missile race, the Operation, uh-huh. you know, uh, was it um, Fishbowl, Operation Fishbowl, uh, part of Project Dominic, which means of the Lord, Fishbowl of the Lord, really. Like, everything that the United States and Russia did immediately after Deep Freeze is exactly what somebody would do if they found out that they were in a cage. Like, what are the boundaries? How deep, you know, how high, how deep, you know, can we dig under this thing? Can we get through this thing? I mean, everything that the United States and Russia did is exactly what somebody would do if they found out that they're in a cage. And when you watch this video here, the story is to be believed. Apparently, they found this this wall, this huge wall of this blue ice, and uh, it doesn't melt and turn into water. Uh, it will melt, but it like just disintegrates. But then, as they started, they figured out, and it was really uh, super, super cold, like like super cold. And they had trouble uh, drilling into it, so they started doing some testing, I think, up in Greenland or something until they found the right equipment that would work, and they went down there. And as they're trying to drill through this thing, it would, like, like heal itself. Like, you, wow. you drill through it and it started to heal itself. So how much truth <laughs> there is amazing. to this story, I don't know, but it makes for a fantastic seed plot line stuff that I'm oh, going yeah, to... Oh, no doubt. I could really pull from all this. But circling back around to the point of, you know, what we're reading about here in this broadcast... They were attempting to reach into heaven, and so you were going to look up something, I think, in the uh, Perk D. Eliezer? Chronicles of Jeremiah. Oh, actually, Chronicles, sorry. One. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So right before the break, yeah. we were talking about that. Yeah, I'll share this with you. And actually, this particular account covers a great deal as far as the story of how Abraham ended up in the firmament and all that, but... I'll just read this portion. In the it furnace, says, in the furnace. Um, I mean, <laughs> you said firmament. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, for they had said, "Come and let us build ourselves a city, and let us take axes and break open the firmament, so that the water flow from there and descend below, that he may not do unto us as he did to the generation of the flood, and let us wage war with those in heaven." and establish ourselves there as gods. Hmm. And so, you know, again, the whole theme of building a tower to the summit of the heaven, uh, this account says that, you know, their intention was to break open the firmament so that they could invade the Holy of Holies, uh, you know, where God has established his throne room and become gods 
take over. Yeah. Which, of course, they could never achieve. But Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll read a portion from uh, Joshua in this regard, and this is actually part seven in the presentation that I'm doing in uh, the Take on the World conference. So uh, sort of a preview of one of the lectures. I think I'm, this one's tomorrow's in tomorrow's lecture, so you get a, people will get a preview of it here. But um, we see in Genesis 11, you know, that, the whole earth was of one language, and they decided to build a, a tower that could reach into heaven. And what is extraordinary to me about this story is the response that Yahuwah says in uh, the, the remaining verses there. Uh, I think it's probably verse 7 or something. Uh, he's, he looks down and he says, you know, this is what they're about. Now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Now, you have to go to Joshua and other accounts to figure out what they imagined to do. I don't mm-hmm. believe it would be possible for them to kill God. Certainly not. How, oh, however, not. the idea that they could build a structure that could reach into heaven, and they were making a pretty good go of it by the time he would decided to step in, that's extraordinary to me. Mm-hmm. That that. I mean, phew. I was just going to mention one other thing as well before you go into the account. In um, the Legends of the Patriarchs and the Prophet, it tells the story of how Nimrod was planning on deceiving his fellows he was going to shoot arrows that had blood on them right and have them fall back down to the you know so he could declare that he had killed god and so his plan was to deceive his followers and you know declare himself that he killed god and that he is now god oh, oh and then so one wait, wait, wait. Thing so is that- i always wondered about that because i remember I remember reading about they shot arrows up there and it came back that there was blood on there. But you're saying that there's mm-hmm. an account that he, he was he was trying to fool people, so he dipped the arrows in blood first and then shot them? Oh, yeah. Them? Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah, and then what happened afterwards is that because he declared himself as God, uh, God placed a, a, a fly, a, a maggot was laid in his brain, <laughs> and it began to eat his brain, and it drove him so crazy that... He would have people beat him in the head, um, you know, because he was in such pain. And he lived like that for a long time until he died. And so, wow, you know, God punished in, him for... Do you, do you know where it says that? Yeah, I'll, I'll find it. It's in the Legends of the Patriots and the Prophets. Oh, yeah, awesome. So maybe you can look for that as I continue with yeah. what I was saying. Okay, that's, I'll do that. That's fascinating. Dude, we're going to write one heck of an amazing script, man, when we finally right. sit down <laughs> and work on all of this. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, in the presentation, I realized that it it was about height after all. You know, I used to say, you know, it wasn't about God didn't freak out when we built the World Trade Centers or you know the Empire State Building or anything like that. And back when I was sucking on the blue pill, I would have said He didn't freak out when we sent the Apollo rockets up to the moon either. You know, now now of course I don't believe that anymore either. Um, but I mean, if I mean that's another thing. If the if what NASA says is true then basically Yahuwah needs to apologize to Nimrod, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, uh, because, <laughs> right. you know, clearly if Nas- if what NASA said is true, they've gone way beyond anything Nimrod was able to do. Uh, but, of course, I don't believe anything that comes out of any space agency, NASA or any other ones for that matter. But uh, right. as I started looking through the text, I did, I, I saw that it was about height after all. In Jubilees chapter 10, it says, and they built it 40 and three years were they building it. So it took them 43 years, and, and they didn't even get to complete it. But at, as far as they right. got, it took them 43 years to do it. 
Its breadth was 203 bricks, and the height of a brick was the third of one. Its height amounted to 5,433 cubits and two palms. The extent of one wall was 13 stades, and of the other, 30 stades. Note, 5,433 cubits equals 8,150 feet. Like, these are huge bricks. Um mm-hmm. In uh, a book called Bible History of Old Testament, chapter 8, an individual named Alfred Edersheim said, Of the magnificence of Babel, the capital of the empire of Nimrod, the mighty hunter, it is difficult to convey an adequate conception without entering into details foreign to our purpose. But some idea of it may be formed from its extent, which according to the lowest computation covered no less than 100 square miles, while the highest computation would make it over 200 square miles. Like, massively huge. And then we get to Joshua, Joshua 9, and all the families assembled consisting of about 600,000 men. And they went to see, and this is the other reason why I think we mentioned this last week, that the Tower of Babel was quite some time after the flood. It wasn't as early after the flood as the days of Peleg, which is only like, I think, 100 or 150 years or something like that after the flood. Um, it's quite some time out. It had to be long enough after, the, if this account is true, it had to be long enough time after the flood for people to procreate enough to get 600,000 men. Mm-hmm. And I maintain, look, if you're living 600 years of age and you're having multiple wives, yeah, you could probably have a whole lot of kids, you know, exponentially perhaps getting up to 600,000 within a few hundred years. Whatever the case, that's what uh, Joshua says anyway. And they went to seek an extensive piece of ground to build the city and the tower. And they sought in the whole earth, and they found none like one valley at the east of the land of Shinar, about two days' walk. And they journeyed there, and they dwelt there. And they began to make bricks and burn fires to build the city and the tower that they had imagined to complete. And the building of the tower was unto them a transgression and a sin. And they began to build it. And whilst they were building against the Lord God of heaven, they imagined in their hearts to war against him, and to ascend into heaven. Continuing verse uh, 26. And all these people and all the families divided themselves in three parts. The first said, We will ascend into heaven and fight against him. The second said, We will ascend to heaven and place our own gods there and serve them. And the third part said, We will ascend to heaven and smite him with bows and spears. And God knew all their works and all their evil thoughts. And he saw the city and the tower which they were building. And when they were building, they built themselves a great city and a very high and strong tower. And on account of its height, the mortar and bricks did not reach the builders in their ascent to it until those who went up had completed a full year. And after that, they reached to the builders and gave them the mortar and the bricks. Thus was it done daily. Now, that sounds ridiculous. It takes a year to get to the top of this thing. Unless you realize... They were carrying very, 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 very heavy loads up an extremely high structure. Like, then you can say, okay, I can see how this may have taken some time. And behold, those ascended and others descended the whole day. And if a brick should fall from their hands and get broken, they would all weep over it. And if a man fell and died, none of them would look at it. It was like, you know, all the labor it took to get as high as they get. If they drop the brick, they're like, oh, are you kidding me? But if some dude <laughs> fell off, they're like, eh, whatever. You know, we, right. they kept moving on. Um, verse 32, Joshua 9. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that, n- that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. 
And from that day following, they forgot each man his neighbor's tongue, and they could not understand to speak in one tongue. And when the builder took from the hands of his neighbor lime or stone, which he did not order, the builder would cast it away and throw it upon its, his neighbor that he would die. And they did so many days, and they killed many of them in this manner. And uh, we got a few minutes before the break, so I'll just continue here. And the Lord smote the three divisions that were there, and he punished them according to their works and designs. Those who said, We will ascend to heaven and serve our gods became like apes and elephants. And those who said, We will smite with the he- smite the heaven with arrows, the Lord killed them. One man threw the hand of his neighbor, and the third division of those who said, We will ascend to heaven and fight against him, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. And those who were left amongst met them when they knew and understood the evil which was coming upon them, they forsook the building, and they also became scattered upon the face of the whole earth. And as I was reading verse 35, and uh, thinking back on my time when I was a missionary in India, we were in northeast India, a little piece of India that's kind of squished on the, the northeastern side there. Um, I mean, there were, there were Hindu gods everywhere, and it may be like that through the whole country, I don't know, but just where I was uh-huh. anyway. The, the Hindu gods were everywhere, and two of them stood out to me in relation to what I just read there, and that's the uh, Hindu gods uh, Hunuman and Ganesha. Uh, right. Hunuman is a ape-headed, human-bodied figure, and Ganesha is an elephant-headed, human-bodied figure. And incidentally, uh, as I understand it, Obama used to have a like a good luck charm of Hunuman that he kept in his pocket. Um, but I began to wonder, I'm like, did Yahuwah's judgment on the people at the Tower of Babel result in the creation of the Hindu gods? Like, I don't know, but that's rather interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating, all of these, uh, all of these stories, and then, you know, reconsidering everything when you look at the fullness of the context of all of them and reading and studying them from all the different manuscripts yeah definitely we got three minutes before the break is there anything you can read before that or um yeah i'll read that one portion let me okay get back to it okay yeah this is where and i can read more of it when we come back but okay it says uh some shot arrows into the sky and they came down tinged with blood then they shouted and cried see we have killed everyone who is in heaven and it also says that, curiously enough, there's a similar story told by the Chinese of one of their earlier monarchs who thought himself so great that he might war against heaven. He shot an arrow into the sky, and a drop of blood fell, and so he said, I have killed God. Uh, and then it goes on into the story of Nimrod. And I was actually looking for that um, story of where the you know, God punished him with the net. So what was it that you just read from just now? It's the legends of the patriarchs and the prophets, oh, very which cool. it, it contains multiple stories of worldwide traditions, um, you know, the different accounts of the Old Testament prophets and patriarchs. Very cool. It's a fascinating text, yeah. Uh, somebody in the chat room uh, agreed about the Hindu gods. Uh, he said, uh, I used to be a Hindu. And uh, he said, yeah, I think that that's true what we were talking about. I mean, and it is so bizarre because when I was there, I mean, they had all kinds of freaky gods. I mean, hundreds of them, you know? Oh, yeah. And when I was just going to say, it reminds me of the story again of, you know, even like the dog headed people and what we were talking about with the linemen of Moab and, 
all of that. Right. Well, I mean, they had to have their origin somewhere. In in this case, right. you know, if they were intending to set up their own gods in heaven, you know, and he specifically singled out those people right there. Uh, let me go back to that verse. Uh, in verse 35, and the Lord smote the three divisions that were there, and he punished them according to their works and designs. Those who said, we will ascend to heaven and serve our gods, became like apes and elephants. So it makes mm-hmm. you wonder if they had crafted gods that may perhaps look like this. And he's like, okay, you want to be like that? <laughs> right. Fine, I'll make you like that. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know and maybe that's what happened to the dog-headed people, too. Yeah, Maybe. I don't know. All right, we're going to break, and uh, we come back, and maybe you can find that uh, other passage you were talking about. All right, looking for it now. Censorship and regulation is becoming an ever-growing problem in today's modern media. From the mainstream to YouTube and Google, the information you're looking for is buried by official narratives and propaganda. This is why TFR is 100% uncensored, unregulated, and listener-supported. The shows on TFR are not micromanaged by the station, and our hosts are free to speak their minds however they please. As such, the views and opinions expressed on our station are of those who make them. If you happen to hear anything offensive on TFR, please send us an email to toughtitty at tfrlive.com and we'll be happy to tell you that we really don't give a damn. We stand for freedom of speech and non-censorship. If you also stand for free speech, you can go to tfrlive.com slash sign up and sign up for a TFR supporter pass and help us in our mission to keep the airwaves uncensored and unregulated. TFR Live your uncensored and unregulated protection from deception. This is a Fox News alert. The vice president accepts. I'm Jack Callahan, Fox News. Vice President Mike Pence telling the third night of the Republican National Convention. So with gratitude for the confidence President Donald Trump has placed in me, the support of our Republican Party, in the grace of God, I humbly accept your nomination to run and serve as Vice President of the United States. Mr. Pence offered a full-throated defense of the administration's response to the coronavirus outbreak and of President Trump said... For the last four years, I've watched this president endure unrelenting attacks, but get up every day and fight to keep the promises that he made to the American people. President Trump made a cameo appearance after the vice president's address, but the president did not speak. The evening ended with Trace Adkins singing the national anthem as the flag was raised over the Fort McHenry Memorial, and a group of disabled veterans in the front row stood at attention. The GOP convention concludes Thursday night with the president's acceptance speech. Hurricane Laura slamming the Gulf Coast, the eye of the Category 4 storm, expected to make landfall soon near the Texas-Louisiana border with winds of 150 miles an hour. But the biggest threat is the storm surge, which the National Weather Service is calling unsurvivable. And now expecting up to 20 foot of storm surge. Imagine 20 feet above the ground and then waves crashing on top of that. That's why they're saying absolutely nothing will be able to survive along the coast if anybody is not out of there. That's Fox meteorologist Rick Reichmuth. The storm last reported about 75 miles south of 
of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Wall Street on Wednesday, the Dow gained 83 points. NASDAQ added 198. The S&P 500 was up 35. Both of those new record highs. America is listening to Fox News. You are now tuned into the truth frequency. We are TFR. Back on the Revolutionary Radio Project. I'm your host, Rob Skiba, and as usual, time is flying by. <laughs> we're already in the second <laughs> half of the show, and uh, you were going to look up some stuff there, uh, Zen, before the, the uh, break. Yeah, uh, let me see if this is it. Um, according to Tabari, God sent an army of his flies against the hosts of Sherlatimer and Nimrod, and these flies attacked the soldiers in their faces and the flies were so numerous that the soldiers could not see one another and the horses stung by them went mad and leaped and fell so that what with the horses and the flies the army was entirely dispersed nimrod escaped to babylon but he was pursued by the meanest of the gnats of that host it was blind of one eye and lame of one leg and when nimrod sat down on his throne the gnat settled upon his knee then the tyrant smote at it, and it rose, flew up one of his nostrils, and entered his brain, which it began to devour. Nimrod beat his face in his head, and when he did so, the fly ceased gnawing at his brain, but he had no repose from his agonies, save when he struck upon when he was struck upon the head. Consequently, there was <laughs> after that always someone stationed by him to strike his head. The king had a large blacksmith's hammer brought into his throne room, and with that his princes and nobles smote him on the head, and the more violent the blow, the greater was the relief afforded. <laughs> Nimrod reigned a thousand years before he felt the torment of the gnat. Up to that moment he had suffered no pains. He lived for five hundred years with the fly eating at his brain, and all that while, night and day, there were relays of men to strike his head with the hammer. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's quite a knucklehead. That's quite a... <laughs> right. Again, uh, I mean, the agony and the punishment. But I mean, if you're gonna Man. declare yourself as God, I mean, what's more blasphemous than that? <laughs> you want to, you want to be God? Okay, you're gonna whack yourself in the head with a hammer for the rest of your life. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, man, that's just brutal. <laughs> brutal. Yes. Jeez. What text was that from? Uh, the Legends of the Patriarchs and the Prophets. Wow. Wow, I'm going to have to look that up. What chapter was that? Um, it is the chapter on Abraham. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know why. It's like I got this like Three Stooges thing in my head. <laughs> like, right? Like he's got these guys like sitting around him. Hey, I need a whack in the head. <laughs> right? Yeah, the the agony. That's it reminds just... me also, you know, that Herod, 
he died uh, with the worms eating him. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, but he did the same, declared himself to be as God, and then also in trying to kill Christ and slaughtering all those babies. You know, <laughs> he said he began to beat himself in the face. I got to tell <laughs> this. <laughs> when uh, when I first, uh, when I joined the Army, of course, you got to go to boot camp, you know, and I was so naive and you know, 18 year old kid down there. And, you know, when we got down there, something happened and our, our, our cycle got delayed a little bit. So they brought us to this, like we found out later, it was just a reception area. And we were there for like, I don't know, like a week or so before going to actual basic training. And it was, it was pretty awesome. I mean, it was like, you know, we woke up at like 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, we were in bed by like 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, we had classes during the day and stuff. And I'm like, man, this must be the kinder, gentler army I always you know, heard about, you know, <laughs> that was coming, right? Uh, and then got the wake-up call, no, you know, now, okay, now we're going to the real deal. So they, we got all our equipment. And, well, actually, first they, they put us all in this big room and they had all these doors to the left of where we were sitting. And the class that was before us, they would go in with their civilian clothes, come out in their underwear, go in, you know, to another door, come out bald, go in another door, <laughs> and then they come out the other door with blood dripping down their arm and this terror on their faces as they're holding their arm, and then they go into this other room and disappear, and we never saw them again, right? So, oh, and I kept looking over, they're like, what is happening to these people, you know? <laughs> and the drill sergeant's like, Skiba, you got something wrong with your neck, boy? I'm like... No, those are They actually made me go stand in the corner with my nose in the corner so I couldn't turn my head. <laughs> like, apparently you got something wrong with your neck, boy. So <laughs> straighten my neck out. And then they continued whatever they're doing. Then we were next. So we go in there and, you know, we go in our civilian clothes, come out in our underwear, go in, get our uniforms, and we're carrying all this stuff out. We go in this other room. They shave our heads. And mm-hmm. and I don't know what I, I watched too many Looney Tunes shows or something growing up because <laughs> the the dude in front of me had this this perfect Q-tip looking head with these big ears sticking out like it was like I was looking at a Q-tip with ears you know uh, and, and like everything just made me laugh like it was so, <laughs> so funny to me and I kept getting in trouble well then we go into this room and they had these these guys on either side with uh, air guns that were full of shots. And uh. and the guy had a hair lip, and he talked like this. He talked kind of funny. He, he's like, okay, you know, keeping in mind safety as our primary consideration, be sure not to move because when the air gun goes off, it will shred your skin. Next. <laughs> and the guy on the left would inevitably shoot like a half a second before the guy on the right did, and you would twitch. And so it would make your right arm bleed. So then when, when you walked out holding your bleeding arm, the next class, you know, hey, Murphy, what's wrong? You got something wrong with your neck, boy? <laughs> and they're <messing laughs> with people looking at us, you know, with our bloody arm. So, right. So they take us to the barracks, and I'm a stomach sleeper, and I'm, I'm like one of these guys. I'm like a rotisserie chicken. I'm flipping all night, all night long. Uh-huh. Well, they made us lay in our beds at attention. Lay, lay on our backs at attention, right? They scared us to death, right? They, you, you will lay and you sleep at attention. You know, I'm like, what? So, you know, I was so scared I did, but uh, <laughs> the uh, it's like 4 o'clock in the morning. Drill started, threw a garbage can down the middle of the barracks and, you know, started banging on the lid. Get up, get up, get up. 
and, gosh. And I shot out of bed so fast, like, what? And I just, I, there was a little, I was in the lower bunk, and there was a little railing about six inches below the upper bunk, uh, like a support beam. <laughs> and I, just, I got that right across the middle of my forehead. Pow! <laughs> Temporarily knocked me unconscious. I'm laying there. And as I start to come to, I got this this silhouette of this drill sergeant. What do you think this is? The Marriott boy? Get up! Get up! Get up! <laughs> so they, we run outside, and they have us flipping around doing, you know, push-ups and sit-ups and flutter kicks and stuff. And uh-huh. uh, then they take us to the, to the first sergeant's office, and we had to get our meal card. And... And, you, and this is a card you had to show anytime you went to the chow line. So if you didn't have it, you didn't get to eat, right? And I don't know how it happened, but somehow I ended up being the first unlucky schmuck at the front of this whole line of, you know, over 100 guys. And so the drill sergeant, we were standing outside the first sergeant's office. He goes, okay, when you get into the first sergeant's office, say this, that, the other thing, okay? And he said all his instructions we're supposed to do. He said, all right, get in there, Skiba. I forgot everything he said, like, right after he said it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I do my best, you know, march forward, right face, and just as I open the door, uh, there's a drill sergeant on the inside. He goes, "Oh my God!" And they start out everything they everything they said started out with, "Oh my God!" <laughs> He's like, "Oh my God! You're bringing snakes into the first sergeant's office." I'm like, "Snakes!" <laughs> I'm freaking out. So they oh say, "Get out of here! Get out of here!" So they send me outside, and of course the other drill sergeants that are out there realize I screwed up because otherwise I'd be in the first sergeant's office, you know. So, <laughs> so they all surround me with their Smokey the Bear hats. You know? They got the Smokey the Bear hats, you know. And, the, like, the brim of their hats are, like, connected to my head. So I've got, like, this <laughs> sergeant, his nose is right up against my nose. Right. Like, what happened, Private? What, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. They said I brought snakes into the first sergeant's office. He's like, snakes? Oh, my God. I'm like, I know. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm from Massachusetts. I'm in Fort McClellan, Alabama, right? I'm thinking Copperheads or something. I didn't know what uh-huh. I was talking about. So he's like, boy, beat your face. I'm like, beat my face? He goes, beat your face. I'm like, all right. So I start smacking myself in the face, right? <laughs> and they, they let me do this for quite some time. Like, <laughs> Finally, one of the drill sergeants stops me. He grabs my hand. He's like, what are you, some kind of moron? I'm like, yes, drill sergeant. <laughs> and he goes, so this guy goes, he, goes, he points to the guy who told me to beat my face. He goes, what did he tell you to do? I said, he told me to beat my face. He goes, well, you better knock him out, boy. I'm like, knock him out. He goes, knock him out. I'm looking at this guy. He's like huge, right? I'm like, no drill sergeant. He goes, no drill sergeant. This other guy like tackles him. He's like, he told you to beat your face. I did, I did. He goes, well, he told you to knock him out. I'm like, no drill sergeant. He goes, boy, he said, you better kiss Alabama right now. I'm like, kiss Alabama, kiss Alabama. I'm like, okay. So I get down on the ground and I start making out with the dirt. You know, I don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) After I do that for a few minutes, he grabs me by the back of my neck and he holds me up and I got like dirt in my mouth. He goes, boy, you really are a moron. I'm like, yes, so he drops me and he picks me back up and he goes, okay, well, we tell you to beat your face or knock him out or kiss Alabama. That means do push-ups. I'm like, oh, why didn't you say so? I could do that. So I get down. I knock out about 50 of them. He goes, picks me up again. Boy, will we tell you to beat your face, knock them out, or kiss Alabama? You're only supposed to do 10. Now get back down. Okay. And then he's like, get into the first sergeant's office. I'm like, okay. I still don't know what I did wrong. Uh, I screwed up six times just trying to get it in the door. And <laughs> just to get your meal card. Just, try, just trying to, and meanwhile, like, 
everybody else is watching me. They wouldn't let anybody else. Go, they wouldn't let anybody else go in until I I, I did it right. You know, uh, you were the example. I was the example, and I brought a couple of my buddies in with me uh, when we joined the military. We went together, so they're watching what's happening to me. They're like, "What did you get me into?" I'm like, "I don't know, man." So right. Somewhere along the line, I figured out what they're talking about. It, when they said snakes, it meant your boot lace was sticking out. One of my shoelaces was sticking out, and they called them snakes. Uh. But oh, okay. oh, dude, I like it. Took me forever just to figure that out. <laughs> but when you, that's why I was laughing so hard when you when you're talking about right. Nimrod. Reminds beat, you of all that. Huh? Nimrod started beating his face. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> oh man, sorry for the rabbit trail, but <laughs> oh just, yeah, no, that's good. You triggered that's me, good. man. You triggered me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a funny story. Wow. So how long? <laughs> how long did he have this thing? Uh, uh, eating his brain. It said for five hundred years. Five hundred years he dealt with. That's one long living maggot. Yeah. Must have been yeah. reproducing. Um, <laughs> not sure, but you know, God was punishing him. So, however, you know, God can do whatever He wants. Wow. Well, yeah. I, I can't imagine he yeah. was that effective a leader after that. <laughs> right. And actually, um, I think in the story, because of his acting this way, they started to doubt, you know, the, his competency oh, to rule. That, that would make sense. Yeah. He would no longer be king of the world. Well, uh, I mean, the Tower of Babel would have been, you know, whatever, whatever you were just describing there would have been something that obviously took place at some point after the dispersion and the languages and everything like that. Um, uh, and so, you know, at the time when the the earth, everybody went away, 70 different languages, it becomes easy to understand how Nimrod could have been known by many other names because mm-hmm. everybody would have wanted away from that same location you know here was the king of the world with all these great ambitions uh, that they were all working for this guy and now they're leaving that site talking in different languages so the same guy would become known by many different names throughout Mm -hmm. throughout many different cultures Um, and of course over time the, the stories would have been embellished and you know all kinds of stuff would happen and it made me wonder because uh, I, I can see a really uh, pretty solid connection between Osiris and Nimrod, uh-huh. and you have in the Egyptian mythology the uh, this uh, was it seventy two conspirators of Set, and that they were responsible. You know his brother killed him, uh-huh. and all that. But in Joshua, we see that it was Esau that cut off his head. But if you if you right. read the story. Um, I think he had because he was just going on like a hunting expedition, and mm-hmm. um, a bunch of he and Nimrod and a bunch of his buddies and other they split up into teams, and I think it was Nimrod and I think two other guys that were with him. Yeah, the king's guard. Yeah. When Esau waited in hiding and and waited for an opportune time and he rushed out and killed him right. and chopped off his head. He well, was trying to get the vestures of light. The, the from vestures the of power. Yeah. Right. So he. And for people who are listening, uh, the the story where Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of beans makes a whole lot more sense when you read the Joshua account of this. Is right it, it, that that story 
happens right after he kills Nimrod. Like he's right. uh, he kills Nimrod and the two guys are with him, and then the other guys hear the commotion, and so Esau takes the cloak and chasing them and, yeah. and runs off and apparently escapes them. And then he's like, you know, look, I don't care. What do I care about my birthright? Just give me something to eat, you know, lest I die. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He was famished. He didn't think he was going to make it through the night, anyways. Yeah, he didn't think he was going to make it, and. Because, I mean, the story doesn't make any sense at all otherwise. When you read Genesis, mm-hmm. like, he sells his birthright for, you know, here's a mighty hunter, first of all. I mean, his dad loved right. him because, you know, he that's my boy. You know, he brings home the venison, right? You know, he, mm-hmm. Esau was a hunter. And yet he sells his birthright for a bowl of beans? I mean, it makes no yeah. sense in the Genesis story. It makes right. total sense in the the larger context of Joshua and killing Nimrod. Yeah. But the point would be is that he kills Nimrod, chops off his head, and kills the other two guys that were with Nimrod. And the other people that were part of the hunting party, they weren't there. They came and saw the aftermath of it. Mm-hmm. So They heard the yells and came. Yeah, so nobody would have been there to... No one would have seen it. No one would have witnessed what happened. So the opportunity to make up stories of how Nimrod the Great was killed, you know, who, mm-hmm. who did it? You could easily see how people would try to take credit for it and how mm-hmm. some of these other stories may have developed. Great. Uh, one other thing with regard to that, and I cover this in my uh, Vesters of Light and Rod of Wonder, is that one of the aspects of the trade that um, Jacob makes with Esau for his birthright and also access to the cave of Machpelah and the rights to be buried there is that he trades him the sword of Methuselah, oh. which is a supernatural sword. Wow. Uh, and it's spoken about in the Legends of the Jews that this was a giant killer. It was a, a sword that was used and it had supernatural properties in some manner. Whoa. Uh, and it was a giant killer. And so Jacob had received that from his father and um, he traded that as part of the, uh, for the birthright and also gave him a large pile of both gold and silver. Wait, so wait a minute. So, so, so who received it? Who ended up with it? Esau. Esau, so Jacob had Remember, it? Yeah, Jacob traded Esau the sword of Methuselah, which, you know, in, in the story, uh, it also says that um, Esau would live by the sword. Oh. And so, yeah, the, the it was this supernatural sword, uh, which he had. Oh, so, oh, um, oh, wow, okay, wait a minute. First of all, where is that from, and who, how did it, how did Jacob end up with it? It was given to him by his father, Isaac. So, okay, Isaac, how did Abraham get it? Um, I, I believe that it was passed on, you know, Methuselah passed it on to the, the patriarchs and um, to... So Shem um, must have given it to him. To right? Lamech and then to Noah and then Noah and on and on, you know, Shem and whoever and well, Abraham. Yeah, Abram, Abram lived with Shem and Noah for an extended right. period of time, so... Right. Uh, yeah, just, actually, he Abram um, and Jacob was living there with Abram, and Abram passed away that night. It was Passover, and his father right. was mourning. That's correct. And that's why um, he was, you know, doing the the lentils, which was a burial uh, ritual, traditional meal for mourning. Yeah, and that's when he traded it off. But yeah, all that is uh, covered in great detail in that Vestures of Light book. Wow, man, I'm I'm looking forward to that because, you know, we're we're working on the uh, the seed video game, and mm-hmm. um, and it deals with Methuselah and and right before the flood and everything. So I wasn't aware of any giant slaying sword of Methuselah. Like that's just way cool. 
Yeah, um, I'll see if I can look it up while we're. Uh, yeah, we're about know, ready to go to break. Next break. Yeah, we'll go to break in about uh, seven minutes. Um, <clears throat> but boy, that would really play in good for some of the plots that we're we're working on on the video game side of things. In that yeah, regard. and it helps you know to understand the the story of the birthright because why would he just trade for a bowl of pottage? Yeah, you know, porridge, <laughs> his old birthright. Um, and, but when you understand that he got the sword of Methuselah as part of the trade, uh, then things, uh, you know, pique your interest. Well, yeah, um, that's interesting about the sword. Uh, so, after where what happened to it after Esau? Does 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 anything say what happened uh, to it? After no, that? I've never heard of what happens Cause again after that. The. Uh, I read. Oh, some- actually, I just found it. I read something somewhere that uh, that the garment uh, from you know it went from Adam uh, to Enoch to Methuselah to Noah uh, to Shem or stolen uh, stolen by Ham and then to Cush, passed down yes. to mm-hmm. Nimrod, and then when Esau killed Nimrod, he had it next. Uh, but it seems like it showed up again later. I don't know if it was it does. Elijah or somebody. Um, well, no, it, it goes from after Rebecca saw where um, Esau had hid them, and she gives them to Jacob. And then Jacob gives them to Judah, but he loses the, you know, the birthright because of the whole trial with Tamar. And then so he takes them back as far as the rod um, and then gives them to Joseph, and then after Joseph dies, then the um, the uh, the the Pharaoh takes them and they empty out and his then, house and take all of his belongings, and then Ruel, who is Jethro, um, Moshe's father-in-law, oh. ends up being his father-in-law. He takes them because he was an advisor of Pharaoh and takes them with him, and as he's walking in, in his garden, uh, the the limb, the rod of wonder, roots and becomes a, a you know, s- sticks into the ground and he can't pull it out. Yeah, because well, when like, Moshe uh, goes Excalibur. there, he is able to pull it out, and that's when Zipporah is given to him. But I just found this passage. I'll read it to you real quick. It says, The scorn manifested by Esau for the resurrection of the dead, he felt also for the promise of God to give the Holy Land to the seed of Abraham. He did not believe in it, and therefore he was willing to cede his birthright and the blessing attached thereto in exchange for a mess of pottage. In addition, Jacob paid him in coin, and besides, he gave him what was more than money, the wonderful sword of Methuselah, which Isaac had inherited from Abraham and bestowed upon Jacob. Wow. Huh, it's kind of amazing that Jacob would have been willing to part with that. Uh, he was more um, worried uh, or concerned with getting the the garments and power and also the rod of wonder because that was what was necessary for, to be initiated in the order of the ancients, which is a whole other yeah, aspect of the story. Yeah, that's part of the Melchizedek thing, isn't it? Yes, it is, and this was a a birthright that was passed on, um, you know, on and on. Well, when we, I, well, actually, let me just read a little bit more. It says, 
Esau made game of Jacob. He invited his associates to feast at his brother's table, saying, Know ye what I did to this Jacob? I ate his lentils, drank his wine, amused myself at his expense, and sold my birthright to him. All that Jacob replied was, Eaten may it be uh, do thee good. But the Lord said, Thou despisest thy birthright, therefore I shall make thee despised in all generations. And by way of the punishment for denying God and the resurrection of the dead, the descendants of Esau were cut off from the world. As not was holy to Esau, Jacob made him swear concerning the birthright by the life of their father. For he knew Esau's love for Isaac, that it was strong. Nor did he fail to have a document made out, duly signed by witnesses, hmm. setting forth that Esau had sold him the birthright together with his claim upon a place in the cave of Machpelah. Though no blame can attach to Jacob for all this, yet he secured the birthright from him by cunning, and therefore the descendants of Jacob had to serve the descendants of Esau. And so, you know, the story goes also that when um, Joseph is taking Joseph, I mean Jacob, to be buried in the cave of Machpelah, that Esau contends uh, and would not let them take him there. And so he gets his brother Naphtali to run back to Egypt to get a copy of this document mm. and then brings it forth. And then um, the child of Dan, I forget his name right now, but he ends up killing Esau for you know preventing his grandfather from being buried. And so that oh, whole wow. story is in the book of Jasher as well. Wow. Yeah, man, we may have to just do a whole <laughs> series just on Joshua because it's a lot, man, that's a lot of cool stuff right here. I mean, we, we just, mm -hmm. I mean, we entered Lord of the Rings territory quite some time ago, right, but I right. mean, yeah, I mean, that's, and uh, but one last thing with the sword of Methuselah, it is mentioned somewhere else. Huh. There are two witnesses to this. Uh, I have another account of the sword of Methuselah somewhere in that Vestures of Light book. And then this one from the Legends of the Jews. So two confirming witnesses. I am totally looking that up <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, so have you published that book? Yes, mm -hmm. I have. The Vestures of Light and the Rod of Wonder. It's the the two books. Um, well, it's three books back now. I just released the Pre-Adamites and the mm. Antediluvian World. And I'm about to release the the Dragon Lords and the Antediluvian Kings, which is the second in the series of the Pre-Adamite book. Uh, just a quick search on this, and apparently from the Sleepy Hollow, I guess, TV series, they actually have something apparently in that show. Really? Uh, uh, that was the first thing that popped up. The Sword of Methuselah, also known as Enoch's Sword, is a powerful blade that possesses the power to defeat any being on Earth, including demons such as Moloch. However, whoever uses a sword to take a life shall have their own soul taken in exchange by the sword. Hmm. It also appears the blade can grant swordsmanship skills and stuff, but apparently this is like a, a wiki fan page, something or another from Sleepy Hollow. Well, well somebody did some research there. <clears throat> well, I, yeah, a, a lot of these shows like that, uh, they do their research. I mean, they actually do, pull, you know, they take a lot of creative liberties, certainly, but they do their research and pull some of these things out. Which uh, the same thing I'm going to be doing is find as many cool things I can and use that as background stuff. All right, going to break.
The reviews for Extendivite are amazing. Here are some from Amazon, September 2018. Extendivite works in keeping my blood pressure in the normal range. I've been using Extendivite for many years now. May 2018. Great product. I use regularly and I rarely get sick. March 2018. This product has relieved what appeared to be angina pain in my chest and shortness of breath after climbing stairs. I'm quite happy about it. February 2018. My husband, son, and I have been using this product for a few months now, and we have noticed an improvement in our joints and blood pressure. Tell us your story. Get Extendivite today. To order, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendivite. Do you want to lose weight but have no idea where to begin? The Fast Start Diet, a three-day weight loss plan, is the answer. Three days of nutritionally balanced, calorie-restricted meals delivered right to your door. No shopping, no measuring, and no cooking. Everything is prepared for you and ready to eat at home or on the go. The Fast Start Diet has all the amazing benefits of intermittent fasting without starving. We've helped thousands of people who have struggled to reach their weight loss goals. Isn't it time we helped you? With the Fast Start Diet, you'll lose weight and feel great. Find us on Amazon or go to faststartdiet.com and use promo code POWER to get $10 off your first box. As a special bonus, we will include our number one rated LiPo3 appetite suppressant spray free with your order. Whatever your diet plans are, start with us at faststartdiet.com and use promo code POWER. Hi, I'm Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. In early 2012, I was facing a laundry list of chronic health conditions that my physician was telling me were incurable. I knew there had to be a better way, and I learned how I could reverse every one of my ailments with science-based, clinically verified medical nutrition. In just a few months, I was able to reverse high blood pressure, gastric reflux, sleep apnea, arthritis, degenerative disc disease, heart arrhythmia, AFib, and many more. And I've lost over 70 pounds and kept it off. Now I'm hosting a radio program that's dedicated to helping my listeners do the same. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, if you're sick of being used as an ATM by your doctor, then you'll want to tune in to the Your DIY Health radio program here on Truth Frequency Radio every Thursday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern and 6 to 8 a.m. Pacific. tuned into the truth frequency your protection from deception tfr truth frequency radio We're back on the Revolutionary Radio Project. I am your host, Rob Skiba, for the final half-hour segment of the broadcast. We are talking about a lot of really cool stuff. And uh, 
<laughs> listen, guys, if you really want this to get out to the masses, I mean, we're going to reach a few thousand people here on YouTube. That's cool. Imagine how many more people we could reach with a mainstream style television series that has this stuff as the plot content. Uh, that's what we're trying right. to do. That's exactly what we're trying to do with Seed. So check out SeedTheSeries.com. Help us make this happen. I'm not going to go through the studios. The only way it's going to happen is if we link arms and do this together. But were you able to look up any more cool stuff <laughs> during the break? Yeah, I actually I pulled out. I got the whole story here from this other account. So I'll just read it, and then it'll give you the fullness of what I'm talking about. It says that, the men slain by Esau on this day were Nimrod and two of his adjutants. A long-standing feud had existed between Esau and Nimrod because the mighty hunter before the Lord was jealous of Esau, who also devoted himself assiduously to the chase. Once when he was hunting, it happened that Nimrod was separated from his people. Only two men were with him. Esau, who lay in ambush, noticed his isolation and waited until he should pass his covert then he threw himself upon nimrod suddenly and felled him and his two companions who hastened to his succor the outcries of the latter brought attendants of nimrod to the spot where he lay dead but not before esau had stripped him of his garments those are the garments of power the vestures of light and fled to the city with them these garments of Nimrod had an extraordinary effect upon cattle, beasts, and birds. Of their own accord, they would come and prostrate themselves before him who was arrayed in them. Thus Nimrod and Esau after him were able to rule over men and beasts. After slaying Nimrod, Esau hastened cityward in great fear of his victim's followers. Tired and exhausted, he arrived at home to find Jacob busy preparing a dish of lentils. Numerous male and female slaves were in Isaac's household. Nevertheless, Jacob was so simple and modest in his demeanor that he, if he came home late from Bet Ha Midrash, he would disturb none to prepare his meal, but would do it himself. On this occasion, he was cooking lentils for his father to serve him as his mourner's meal after the death of Abraham. Adam and Eve had eaten lentils after the murder of Abel, and so had the parents of Haran when he perished in the fiery furnace. The reason they are used for the mourner's meal is that the round lentil symbolizes death, as the lentil rolls so death, sorrow, and mourning constantly roll about among men from one to the other. Esau accosted Jacob thus, Why art thou preparing lentils? Jacob, because our grandfather passed away, they shall be a sign of my grief and mourning that he may love me in the days to come. Esau, Thou fool, dost thou really think it possible that man should come to life again after he has been dead and has moldered in the grave? He continued to taunt Jacob. Why dost thou give thyself so much trouble, he said? Lift up thine eyes, and thou wilt see that all men eat whatever comes to hand, fish creeping and crawling creatures, swine's flesh, and all sorts of things like these, and thou vexest thyself about a dish of lentils? Jacob if we act like other men, what shall we do on the day of the Lord, the day on which the pious will receive their reward, when a herald will proclaim, Where is he that weigheth the deeds of men? Where is he that counteth? Esau, is there a future world? Or will the dead be called back to life? If it were so, why hath not Adam returned? Hast thou heard that Noah, through whom the world was raised anew, hath 
reappeared? Yea, Abraham, the friend of God, more beloved of him than any man, hath he come to life again? Jacob, if thou art of the opinion that there is no future world, and that the dead do not rise to new life, then why dost thou want thy birthright? Sell it to me, now while it is yet possible to do so. Once the Torah is revealed, it cannot be done. Verily, there is a future world in which the righteous receive their reward. I tell thee this, lest thou say later I deceive thee. Jacob was little concerned about the double share of the inheritance that went with the birthright. What he thought of was the priestly service, which was the prerogative of the firstborn in ancient times. And Jacob was loth to have his impious brother Esau play the priest, he who despised all divine service. The scorn manifested by Esau for the resurrection of the dead, he felt also for the promise of God to give the Holy Land to the seed of Abraham. He did not believe in it, and therefore he was willing to cede his birthright and the blessing attached there in exchange for a mess of pottage. In addition, Jacob paid him in coin, and besides, he gave him what was more than money, the wonderful sword of Methuselah, which Isaac had inherited from Abraham and bestowed upon Jacob. Mm. You know, so that's the the story what's that uh, what were you reading the, from? the legends of the jews chapter one verses six through eight and so you know what i was talking about with the wow the birthright as far as being connected to the uh, initiation into the order of the ancients that along with the garments of power and the rod of wonder uh, those that inherited the birthright or those particular possessions and items, they were initiated into this, uh, what is the Melchizedek order of the ancients. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was passed on along with um, the, the kingship, except for when it was separated after, um, you know, after Jacob, um, it was separated with Judah and Levi. Levi and then it was restored um, with Yahushua, Christ, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that priest, prophet, and king, and everything was brought back together. Um, and so, you know, this story uh, covers that in greater detail. Man, that's fantastic. Uh, I met a guy named Daniel who had taken a Nazarite vow, and the thing is about taking a Nazarite vow today is if you're going to do that, it's a lifelong commitment. Because uh -huh. there's no Levitical priesthood, no legitimate Levitical priesthood, because you have to uh -huh. end your vow in front of a Levitical priest. And since there is no legitimate Levitical priesthood in place right now, if you take a Nazarite vow today, it's till death do you part, you know. Uh -huh. um, and so, you know, his hair has gotten quite lengthy, and uh, he sold everything, and he and his wife, they just, they, they live purely on faith and the good graces of others taking them in and uh you know Yahuwah provides all of their needs in that way and usually whenever a family takes them in you know he's he ministers to them until you know such time as you know it's time for him to leave and go uh, right. someplace else well he was staying with um a guy that w was leading these torah studies when we first got into it and uh he had made this chart up that was very detailed. Like his whole, his whole thing was trying to understand the Melchizedek order. Because uh -huh. uh, we see in, in uh, Hebrews that Yeshua is in the order of Melchizedek. It's, right. it's an order. And 
so many people think the way it's written in the book of Hebrews that, you know, who has no father or mother, that it has to be Yeshua that uh, Abraham met with at the end of the Genesis 14 war, which is a war uh-huh. of giants. You know, um, the Genesis 14 war, Josephus c- tells you point blank, this is a war of giants. I've got a timeline chart up on the screen for people uh, that I made a while back. Again, I need to put it <laughs> in a timeline so I can kind of wrap my head around everything, but five kings of giants versus four kings of giants and the four kings beat the five kings, chased them into the uh, slime pits that after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that that's that area right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became convinced, and I talked to both Dr. Aaron Judkins as well as uh, Dr. Judd Burton and said, guys, take a look at my research here and tell me what you think. You know, kind of go in behind me and, and poke holes in my theory if you can. And they thought that I was right on target. And I was saying that I think the greatest archaeological find of all time is waiting for us at the Dead Sea in in the area where the five kings were, you know, uh, basically fell into like quicksand, you know. Uh-huh, right. And yeah. with all that uh, bitumen, salt and everything, they, they're probably very well preserved. I'm thinking there's a massive archaeological dig waiting for us there with these armies of giants. Uh, right, they're, like the La Brea tar pits. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. um, and uh, Judd Burton's like, yeah, man, I think you're right. In fact, he was gonna when I went to uh, Cape Town in Pretoria, the host that brought us to, Sheila and I to Pretoria, South Africa. Uh, he wanted to at one point he wanted to fund it, uh, but Judd wasn't able to r- really uh, make that happen. At least not at the time. Because uh, he had connections in his, I mean, you can't just go dig in there. I mean, you got to get all kinds of permissions and permits and stuff with the nation of Israel. Um, uh-huh. But at any rate, after that war, uh, we know that the Keter Laamar, who was like the right-hand man general, patent to Amraphel, who was Nimrod. Yes. Uh, they took Lot and his family as spoils of war, and that's where Abraham's like, uh, no, I don't think so. And, right. you know, for, forget Gerard Butler, right? We got 300. Uh, uh, right, 317. Yeah, three, uh, 318 with yeah. uh, Abram and his buddies there. And and, and Abram right. uh, partnered up with Mamre, Aner, and Eshkel, who were, best I could tell, were, were good giants, Amorite giants who helped Abraham Abram to get uh, get Lot back, but anyway, it's after that war that he comes back and he he has this conversation with Melchizedek, and many people because of the Book of Hebrews the way it's written think well well no father and mother it's got to be Yeshua well Yeshua had a he had both a father and a mother <laughs> uh, uh, right. you know Yahuwah is the father and Mary's the mother so but uh-huh. but they're saying well because Yahuwah you know Yeshua was in the beginning with God you know. He, he was the word that was with God and was God and all that, that 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 Melchizedek must have been him. And I'm like, well, if you go that route, then you have to believe that Yeshua ruled and reigned on earth as a physical person for an extended period of time over extended plots of land before his yeah. advent, you know, yeah, birth no. of Mary. And I'm like, no, Joshua tells you point blank that Shem was exactly was yes. the Melchizedek at that time. Right. And Daniel, that that guy that took the Nazarite vow, he had all these charts and everything. I remember we had this long hallway, and he pulled out this chart, and he was had all this detailed stuff on there. But you know, the, the reason Hebrews is written the way it is is because Adam was the first one, and exactly he, he yes, had no father right. or mother; he was dirt, <laughs> right? You know, uh, and, and of course, then it gets passed down, and it was always to go to the firstborn son. 
but it never did because there's always some kind of issue. Something uh-huh. always came up, and that's why one of the other reasons why Yeshua is referred to as a firstborn of many. Um, and I, I'm of the opinion that because, and I've heard some interesting research regarding Yeshua's ancestry because of Mary being a cousin to Elizabeth and mm-hmm. jo- John the Baptist being the legitimate high priest yes. uh, of, uh, I think it's the Zadok order, I think. Mm-hmm. Um at any rate, John the Baptist was the legitimate high priest, which means he had to have traced back to Levi. So if Elizabeth's family traces back to Levi and Mary's a cousin to Elizabeth, then Yeshua had not only blood ties to Judah, but he would have yes. also had blood ties to to, Aaron. to Levi, Aaron. Aaron, yes. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's confirmed in that... Um, that I sent you a book called On the Priesthood of Jesus Christ. Yes. And it confirms that there... Yes. So he would have a blood tie right to Melchizedek to Melchizedek right. to Melchizedek hood if you can yes. say, say that. Uh but I maintain that at the Passover meal that some call the last supper he fits the requirements for a right. Melchiz- uh, a um Nazarite vow. Cuz the requirement of Ma- the Nazarite vow is to abstain from the fruit of the vine and to declare a duration. And he did both. I'm not going to drink again of this until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm of the opinion that he took a Nazarite vow, and that's that perhaps and also with the, the bloodline ties through both Mary and Elizabeth, was able to perform priestly duties as a king of the line of Judah. Yes. Uh, but also a priest. So he, right. he as you said, he, it, it was the Melchizedek started with Adam, went all the way through to Jacob, and then was split with the kingship going to Judah and the priesthood going to Levi, and that's not reunited again until we get to Yeshua. In exactly, the yes. Melchizedek. that's right. So, but, but now you're adding another whole element to all of this with this sword of power and all this stuff. It makes me think, okay, wait a minute. Like, whatever happened to that sword? And is this maybe something that uh, Yeshua yeah, is Yeshua going to be wielding this sword? I don't know. Just <laughs> I've only seen two mentions of it uh, in all of the manuscripts I've ever read. So Wow. Uh, but, yeah, I would love to learn more about that but you, you know the whole thing of the garments of power and the rod of wonder that was all so exciting for me to put and piece that story together um but yeah i would love to learn more about the sword of methuselah but um well even the rod the 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 lure that we i mean we have the, the greeks were great at stealing other people's mythology and then just customizing uh-huh. it for themselves you know um right. And so you have like the golden fleece in the Greek mythology, uh-huh. and you look at the golden fleece and thing in Excalibur. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say. The Excalibur yeah. story about the sword in the in the stone is was long predated by the story of of Moses and the yeah, staff in the stone, it. and he was only one. And of course, you got Thor and the hammer that only the you know the righteous, pure-hearted can right. lift. And it makes you think, eh, you know, maybe all this actually does have some sort of legitimacy going back to. You know more of a Hebrew roots side of things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I fully, fully agree, um, and that's why you know for me it's exciting to read all these various parallel accounts because you learn a lot of these extra details, and especially with the Targum because um, that's where I first read about the the Vestures of Light and then went on a search, you know, about 
and then tracked and traced down that story. But with regard to the Order of the Ancients, uh, we have also released a book. Uh, and for people that are interested in all the books that I'm talking about, you can find all of them at sacredwordpublishing.com. Um, but we also released a book on the Order of the Ancients, and I tracked down and covered the Melchizedek priesthood in that particular manuscript as well. So. Ah, fascinating stuff. I mean, there's just so much. Uh, there is so much. You know, if people are looking at the chart that I've got on there, I, I try to capture as much of the story as I could between the, the life of Nimrod and the life of Abraham. And, mm -hmm. you know, after Sarah dies, he's negotiating with Ephron of the Hittites. <laughs> who, right, right, yeah. Who, who, mm -hmm. Ephron means fawn-like, and the Hittites are drawing carvings of satyrs. Satyrs, <laughs> right. You know, I think we talked about this. What was it last week? Did we talk about this last week? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, the I mean, you start seeing all kinds of animal human stuff afterwards in the post-flood chimeras like the yes. the black obelisk of Shalmaneser the third the lion mm -hmm. man that's right we talked about lion man last week yeah the lion man so I mean man I mean have you ever thought about trying to create this all-encompassing storybook <laughs> yeah I, I have and what I thought of um, doing is like creating a super narrative yeah and where I take all of the stories of all these different parallel accounts and put them all into order according to the yes. Old Testament patriarch and character and I also thought about too that you know after we do the book of Enoch that we should do the full story of the life of Yahushua beginning with the ascension of Isaiah where he descends mm -hmm. out of the heavens where he's given the commission of, by the Father and the Holy Spirit to descend down through the seven heavens and enter into the womb of Mary where he would be immaculately conceived and then cover all of the infancy stories as well because there's so many fascinating stories about the infancy and how Mary, you know, cured leprosy and demonic possession with his bathwater and with what? Uh, his swaddling clothes. And uh. wow, dude! I mean, we'll be making shows for the next fifty years. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, man. <laughs> well, at least I know what I'm doing every other week, anyway. Yeah, my, yeah, exactly. For my show, that makes it a whole lot easier for <laughs> booking guests and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> not have to worry about well, that. Well, there's so much interesting information and. You know, it, like if we uh, ever get through what we're doing with the whole Genesis Revisited narrative, uh, and if we ever did like a New Testament type of thing and bring the fullness of the story of Christ out, oh my goodness. Because, uh, you know, we just, in our digital book readers club, where we meet every Saturday and read with a group of people, hmm. uh, our last manuscript that we went through, the book was the Yahushua Christ, the infancy early childhood and lost years hmm. and everybody loved uh doing that study it's deeply moving i mean reading the infancy gospels it will it will bring you to tears because you're literally studying um you know and how he knew uh, even told the story about how you know the the thief um that had spared uh, joseph and mary uh, and given them safe passage through a part where they used to all burglar, and he told his mother that this would be the thief that would die on the cross what? with me. When, wow. Yeah, yeah. Told him the prophecy, and that he would <laughs> spare him then. 
um, you know, and and take him into paradise. And his mother says, God forbid that should ever happen to you. But he knew, even as a, you know, four-year-old child, three-year-old child, whatever, going to into Egypt, that he's um, going to be on the cross. So wait a minute. Uh, so so there was a a young thief that in, that helped Mary and Joseph and baby Yeshua in on the path to Egypt, and yes, and then 30 years or so, 20-something years later or whatever, he's the same thief that's on the cross? Yeah, actually, what? both of them, the, the two <clears throat> thieves that end up on the cross with him, he bribes the other thief to allow them to go through uh, and gives him all of his possessions that he had stolen over that week so that he wouldn't wake up the rest of the the, the brigands, you know, and, and to... Um, to, um, to theft you know to steal from mary and joseph and to give them a hard time and so that's when he tells them you know christ tells them yeah this i'll spare him and i'll reward him for what he's doing now when um persecuted and he is crucified with me wow you know the stories are amazing people are asking do you believe the infancy gospels are true you know for me i don't know if they are or not I, i know that when they were trying to figure out what to make as far as a canon, they had all kinds of debates about what they're going to keep and what they weren't going to keep. Um, for me, any of these texts, we've talked about this many times before. If it doesn't contradict with Scripture, I just think, hey, right. you know what? Right. It's it's interesting commentary. You know, it, if it's just fanciful storytelling, okay, maybe it is. Um, but like the TV series The Chosen, um, I mean, they are sticking to the biblical narrative, but taking uh-huh. creative li- license and filling in the gaps. Mm-hmm, like, right. you know, all we get is you know bullet points in the in the gospels and a, a highlight of the of the story. But what they're doing in the chosen is they're like, okay, let's look at all the people that interacted with Yeshua. These were regular people. Let's tell their story. Right. You know? And I don't know if you had a chance to see it yet, brother, but this. The, the, oh, I did. And oh. I, I, yeah, I've already oh, have you? binge watched all of them. Oh. Yeah, and I was. Man. Deep, and that's what got me actually excited uh, to do these stories and even the story of Christ in this way, including oh. all the infancy narratives. And, and yes, I do believe that there are multiple witnesses for them being inspired to some degree, because you have to remember that they were written by both James and Thomas, who were his half-brothers that grew up with him and Mm. knew Mary as their stepmother. And so, you know, who better to write the stories of the uh, the life and the parentage of Mary as well as the childhood of Christ. And so... Wow. So so you saw it. Man, the the John 3.16 scene with Nicodemus was... Mm -hmm. Oh, man. That was so well done. So well done. All of them. I, yeah. I mean, I, I literally cried cry? probably at every, <laughs> I did every episode just like you were talking about. <laughs> I did too, man. I, <laughs> I, I, there was not one episode, I don't I don't think. I don't think there was one episode that I didn't at least tear up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the whole, you know, concept of the crowdfunding and how people would <sighs> be supported if you do the story correctly. I could, I could certainly see us being able to succeed in pro- you know, bringing out the the larger and more detailed story of all these things that so few people even know about have ever heard or even had chance to read. Well, exactly, and I mean that's exactly what I'm trying to do at Seed is 
tell I mean they're they're telling a very small story. It's right. it's the story of the people that interacted with Jesus during his ministry. Okay. Uh-huh. That's a very small story when the in the grand scheme of things. We want to tell the really big story. Yes. Uh yes. and and you know frankly compliment uh the chosen. It wouldn't be anything Oh like, yeah. I mean if, if anything it's like if you watch what we're trying to do with seed and then watch the chosen you'd be like oh wow you know mm-hmm. to see who Yeshua really was and what he really did yes yeah one last thing with regard to because in the gospel there's only one story you know where he was found in the temple teaching the uh, the um, the rabbis and the men of wisdom what people don't know and what is covered in great detail in the infancy gospel even as a child of two years of age they were not able to find him a teacher because he was smarter than all of the <laughs> teachers and they would you know were humbled by him and they knew that he was masterful even at that young age and so he never went to school and that's why you found him instructing even the the elders and the rabbis in the temple all were amazed at him and his knowledge that's awesome yeah well we uh, we are out of time and so we'll have to continue this on your show next week and for everybody else you want to check out uh, the Take on the World 2020 conference where Zen is also speaking so, so am I uh, go to Celebrate Truth Robbie Davidson's YouTube channel and uh, that'll be streaming for the next couple of days alright man have a good all one. right. Be blessed. Good night, all. Good night, everybody.